Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. It is our last episode of the month, which means it's The Stacks Book Club Day. Today, Britt Bennett, New York Times number one instant best-selling author of The Vanishing Half, is back with us for our discussion of Sula by Toni Morrison. We have so many spoilers on this week's episode, so please make sure you've read the book before you continue listening. As a reminder, everything we've discussed today on the show can be found in the link in the show notes. I want to take a moment right here to thank some of the newest members of the Stacks Pack over on Patreon. Those are folks who contribute a little something to the Stacks each month to keep the show up and running. They earn perks like our virtual book club and shout outs on the show. They also have my unending gratitude because without them, there would be no The Stacks. If you want to join The Stacks Pack, head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks. This week, I am saying an extra big thank you to Susan Cohen, Nicole Conlin, Lindsay Peterson, Kimiko Mainprize, Shelby Williamson, Michael Payden, Caitlin Fitzpatrick, Aaron Durst, Samantha Dealey, Tom Moriarty, Callie Cummings, and Lauren Jones. Thank you all so, so, so much. Be sure to listen all the way to the end of today's episode to hear what our book club selection is for September. All right, let's dive into our spoiler-filled book club conversation of Sula by Toni Morrison with our guest, Britt Bennett. All right, you guys, I am back again today with the wonderful Britt Bennett. Britt, welcome back to the Stacks. Hey, thanks for having me again. I'm so excited. Stacks Book Club. It is our Toni Morrison episode. We've done The Bluest Eye. We've done Beloved. And now here we are. We're doing Sula today. For those of you who have not read the book, let me say this very clearly to you so I don't get nasty DMs. We are spoiling the book. We're going to talk about all the characters. We're going to talk about all the plot points. We're going to talk about the ending. We're going to ruin the whole book for you. So if you haven't read the book yet, pause this episode. Go read it. It's 174 pages. It goes by so fast. It's incredible and then come back and listen. Britt and I will be here waiting for you to spoil everything. So Britt, we always start here. What did you think of Sula? Well, first, I guess we should start with, have you had you read Sula before this? And then also, what do you think of the book? Yeah, so I had read Sula before years ago. Um, so I hadn't revisited it since then. And I think the, the biggest uh, surprise, I guess, in me revisiting it was just truly... Um, how gruesome this book is. <laughs> like mm. there were so many, I think the moment that I remembered most vividly is Sula cutting off the tip of her finger. Like that was mm-hmm. the gruesome, that was the gruesome moment that I remembered when I thought about. And really that was the moment, like the image that I remembered the most of the whole book. Um, but I forgot about all of these other images of, you know, people burning and people being set on fire and, um, you know, people jumping out of windows and, and bleeding. And, and um, you know, there's that, that image in the very beginning of um, on the battlefield of, you know, a soldier getting his head shot off and the body continuing to run as the head has like exploded everywhere. And truly, you know, I had, I remember I saw some, saw, I think a tweet that was describing Toni Morrison as like goth. And I'm like, it's, mm. it's true. You know, like there is something, um, I think we often associate her work with, with being super natural, and I think that is true, but I also think there is an element of just kind of horror in, in a lot of her work, 
Um, and this book certainly has like a lot of sort of gruesome, gruesome moments and gruesome images. So I don't know why it was that the, that Sula cutting off the fingertip was the one that impressed upon me the most. Um, but but that was I think the most surprising thing about revisiting the book was just all of these other moments of sort of gruesome sort of violence or gruesome suffering that I had I guess repressed over the years. Right. The fingertip moment stuck with you because that is like Sula, you a bad bitch, girl. Like I <laughs> like. Woo! don't fuck with Sula. Like that moment is chilling and amazing. Yeah. So this is my first read of Sula. Um, I was not really, I'd never read Toni Morrison before I started this podcast. So every time we do an episode, it's my first read of the book, which has been kind of fun um, to talk to other people who have read it and who have, you know, multiple levels of feelings about it. But so far as my third Toni Morrison read, it is my favorite. I th- thought this book was incredible. I just felt like from the beginning, from the introduction of the bottom all the way through the last sentences, I was all in. I was never confused in a way that I was confused when I read both The Bluest Eye and Beloved. More the ending of The Bluest Eye. But Beloved, I was like, I have no fucking clue what's going on. Like, tr- <laughs> truly, I kept being like, am I am, did I, is, am I missing pages? Like, it, I didn't understand it. S- since doing the book on the ep- podcast, I figured out that I actually was understanding it, but it's just more confusing. It's less straightforward. But... I felt like when I was reading Sula, I kept being like, oh my God, Toni Morrison is just like going off right now about so many things. There's so much in this book. Like she's talking about feminism. She's talking about love and relationships and she's talking about sex as a thing and not as part of love, which was so incredible. And she's talking about mental health and she's talking about power and color. And she just like she snapped like she just was like I'm all right I don't know if I'm ever gonna write another book so let me just write about everything really quickly just in case I never get a chance again and so I just uh, I just was like totally it for me this was I got Toni Morrison for the first time I got why people are obsessed with her because the other two books while I loved them and appreciated them and there were moments I didn't quite get the obsession around her and now I'm like oh this makes so much more sense um to me now, I guess. And to your point, all these like gruesome moments, one of the big notes that I had taken down when I, when I was reading was she does such a good job of capturing what it means to be black in America because it is the bleakness and the humor. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, there's the part where she cuts her finger off and it's like, whoa, holy shit, what's going on? But then two seconds later, it's like, oh, ha ha ha. Like that was clever. You know, like it's like this mm-hmm. mix of kind of, you know, Eva, the the grandmother is, you know, burning her son alive. But then the next scene, she's like talking shit. And I felt mm-hmm. like that bleakness and that humor together just felt like so encompassing of being black in America. I don't know if, yeah. if that resonated with you at all. I, I mean, I think so. And I think I thought about this book um, I think about this book also I think in conversation with their eyes are watching God um, which um, I had a I had a conversation with Angela Flournoy who um, we were talking about the vanishing half but about these books that open with with a woman who has mysteriously returned mm. um, which Angela described as what's she doing back here as like a genre um, and we were like joking the whole time about like what would belong in that canon um, and that's not the way Sula opens, but there is that what's she doing back here moment in the book, right? Yeah. Um, so I think both of those being books that belong to sort of that canon of of literature that I do associate with Black women writers, although obviously not the only people to write these books and not the only characters to experience that. Um, but I, I think about those books kind of in conversations. I think they are both stories of of Black misery and Black humor uh, coinciding in these um, in these interesting ways. Um, and I think that also is like what is I, I think there can be a perception sometimes of blackness as something that's just sort of relenting misery. Right. And there's something that's so dehumanizing about that. And there's something that's also so false about that. Yeah. It's just like, you know, anything that happens, you go on black Twitter and people are making jokes about it. Like there's right. not there is there's always been a, a, a way to find humor and to find um, to find some other sort of uh, of. I don't even know if it's a sense of joy or, or just a sense of irony um, to find that in any type of sort of experience. And, and I think that that's true of this book for sure. Yeah. And I think that that's definitely an, a non-black person's view of blackness because I feel like 
one of the things that I love most about being black is that sense of humor, that communal sense of humor that it's almost like if you're black, you're like born into the ability to like talk shit and make jokes, you know, and and like white people or non-black people don't necessarily understand that. And they hear us, especially in this moment, right, where there's a lot of grievances being aired about all the things that are shitty about being black, like all the things where it's hard, you know, publishing is harder. Being a podcaster is harder. Being a black woman is harder than being a white woman or being a black man. Like there's all these ways that people are kind of talking about the ways that racism and the burdens of being black. But I think what's missed from that conversation is while people are airing a lot of grievances and talking about all this destruction is that we know we still wouldn't trade this shit for anything because we're (laughs) hella funny. We're creative. We're imaginative. Like there's a whole other part of being black. Like we are the cultural standard bearers, you know, like there's so much richness, which I feel like is what she captures so well in this book, that rich, you know, ability to kind of just be fully human like these characters are unabashedly just what I think of as human and I don't think that that's true for other um, ethnic groups or cultures in the same way that it is for black people and calling out black twitter such a good point because like (laughs) some terrible shit will happen and the next thing you know there's a tweet with 20,000 retweets and I'm like you guys (laughs) (laughs) well I remember one time I was I was in France and there was a, a white French guy was taking a picture of me and he said to me posed like a black American, sad and strong. And I just like kept thinking, (laughs) I kept thinking to myself like, oh, is this what people think that like, that's what this means to him of what it means to be a black American, sad and strong. And I was just like, (sighs) this is the most, you know, like that's not, as you said, that's not my experience of being black. There is obviously sadness, but I think like in this, book you know you open with the idea that you know these are people who are living in the hills and it's called the bottom so like you right. open you open in a joke really. right um and you know even sort of uh you know moving like there's there's so much i think this book has to say about the nature of art or black art um you know that that sort of iconic line of of about sula being an artist with no art form mm. um, so there's like a lot of this and then to sort of end in this space of this kind of communal parade or this communal sort of parade turned turned riot turned sort of uprising right. um but it begins in this this kind of sense of revelry um i think that all of those things are always coinciding i think um because it's that's also yeah not to not to go down the beloved wormhole but like that's also there's spaces in which we have these com- the communal art making that exists in, in beloved too i think that that's something that you find in, in a lot of Tony morrison's books wait can you talk more about that i'm not even sure i understand um, what you mean by like the art part of it in Sula, the idea of, you know, uh, ending in the space that is, uh, that is a, a sort of parade. But to me, the reading, the experience of reading that, of there being bells that are jingling and there being people that are sort of joining in, there was a way in which that felt artful to me. Mm, um, mm-hmm. and I think about the end of beloved of sort of the community gathering to kind of cast out beloved and that sure. being, Something so these are not like necessarily traditional art spaces. I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, yeah, but the idea of of I think that's also something that feels um, that feels uh, and not to like essentialize blackness or whatever, but to me that is something that feels like a part of of uh, black culture of art being communal. The idea yeah. of, of art being something that um, that you make with other people, <laughs> and these are forms that are not these are not people. You know, it's not a concert that's happening. It's not anything traditionally art artistic in that way but it felt it feels like they're the people are coming together to make art out of sorrow and 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 that's that's where we land kind of in both books right do you feel like as a writer who makes art in a much more solitary way as until you kind of hand it off and other people start to put their hands in it and then often in those cases in publishing it's a lot of probably white hands do you have (laughs) thoughts about that like do you have or feelings about that I mean yeah I think it's it's it can be, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been thinking about the idea of artist communal because um, I remember last year at the Brooklyn Book Festival, I heard um, Sadia Hartman talk about uh, writing, and she said something very offhandedly that was about what it means to write to Black people and to write for Black people and to write with Black people. Mm. And I think it was the with that really hmm. threw me because – I think about I'm writing. I think about myself as writing to black people. I think about myself as writing for black people, but I don't think about myself as. I, at least at that point, I had not thought about myself as writing with anybody hmm. because again, you're by yourself in a room at your laptop. 
working on a novel. But I think the kind of zooming out and thinking about that in a larger scale of what it means to to both write sort of with your community instead of just writing about your community. I think that that's something that's just important to kind of resituate yourself so that it doesn't feel like you're doing anthropology. It doesn't feel like you are a writer on a pedestal and you're looking down at the people that you're writing at. I think the idea of being like considering yourself as part of a community and you were making art with these other people, even though you are the person writing, I think that that's just really important for, for ego and for, mm -hmm. uh, and just, just to prevent yourself from, from feeling like you have to translate your community or feeling like you are being like some sociologist writing about people. Um, I think that that that's really important there, but I think also thinking about writing with as, as thinking about all of these writers that I admire, the, the Toni Morrison's and the Alice Walker's and the Zora Neale Hurston's to imagine myself as writing with them in some yeah. way. Um, there's a way in which that also feels like, like a monstrous act of ego. Um, but there's also, I think a way in which it feels like, you know, I think, like I said, there's, you know, I think I'm always paying homage to a lot of these writers, um, in different ways. I think the vanishing half begins with this, you know, woman who's mysteriously returned. And I always thought of that as a, as a nod to their eyes were watching God and, and, you know, again, with the Sula cutting off the tip of her finger, there's a moment in The Vanishing Half where somebody cuts their finger. Um, so there are moments like that, I think, when I am sort of intentionally nodding to those artists. But even when it's not intentional, I'm always I'm always kind of wanting to imagine my work being in communion with their work in some way. And I think that thinking about writing in that way, even though it's a solitary act, makes it feel uh, like a sort of more communal act. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I read you, I read Sula last but I read The Mothers and then I read The Vanishing Half and then I read Sula. And I think that like there's also very a lot of similarities in Sula and your work because there's these female relationships that are about females relating to one another as opposed to being near each other. Like it's about their the love between women in, yeah. in your in your books and in and in Sula. So was that was Sula at all an influence for you in writing besides like the fingertip moment or when you went back and revisited the book where did you even notice that or? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that for, I think probably more for the mothers, I think, yeah. you know, because it's, it's, it's a similar sort of, I guess the big difference is that Nadia is sorry. <laughs> I guess it's, right. it's the big difference. <laughs> um, it's like, you know, this, this idea of Sula being so unapologetic um, and, you have that moment where, where Nell confronts her and it's just like, why did you sleep with my husband? And she's just kind of like, I wasn't really about you. I just did it because I wanted to. Um, there, there's something about that that I, I love as a reader, but I don't think I would have ever had the nerve to do as a writer. Mm. I think there's, there's so much of gutsiness required from that. And I think that was the other thing I think I felt rereading the book was just, I kept oscillating between like sort of Sula was right. And also like, no, Sula's a bird. Like she's wrong. <laughs> like I kept, right. I kept going back and forth between those poles as I was reading the book. Um, and, and I think that that's, that is, I don't know. There's something that's so, I think that unapologeticness about the character, um, that is not something that I think exists in the mothers or really anything I've written. I don't think I could ever write a character that, that sort of unapologetically just herself, you know? Hmm. Uh, but I think that in a lot of ways that the, that being, um, a love story between women. Um, I think that's always what I'm interested in writing, even when these characters are having various other romantic relationships. I'm always thinking about the relationships between and among women and how complicated those relationships can be. So I think Sula is certainly a model for that. Yeah. It's interesting for me and Sula when I think back on the book that I finished two days ago. But when I think about it, they're really, we hear a lot about how Sula and Nell are best friends and they're like two, ha two halves of the same whole and all this stuff. But there really are, is only like, two scenes that we actually see with them, right? It's like the chicken, like we hear tell of previous moments, but two scenes where they're presently, where we're hearing from them in the moment and it's the chicken little scene, right? Mm -hmm. And then the scene at the end, that's like, or I guess there's three. There's also the scene where she first comes back. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that's interesting kind of, cause it's like, we're told that they're obsessed with each other and they yeah. love each other and all this, <laughs> but we don't really get to experience it until later in the book. So then when you do, it kind of feels like, Ooh, like, Oh, I yeah. get it now. I don't know. There's something kind of cool about doing that to us yeah. as a writer. I think so. And I think also it's it's proof that 
it's not about like the amount of moments. It's about picking the right moments. Mm-hmm. So like, again, not to keep going back to this, but when Sula cuts off the tip of her finger, like what more do you need than that? Right. You know, like there's something so big and bold in that gesture that like you could show us, you know, tons of scenes of Sula and Nell just hanging out or whatever, but nothing is going to show me like the intensity of that bond and also just the intensity of, of Sula, like that gesture that you do see. Um, so I do think like that is, and I think that's also, a. I think I, in my memory, I felt like you saw them together more in the present moment. So I remembered that differently. And maybe part of that is what you were saying. Like there is a, a feeling of that relationship being so tight and being so big that even though you don't see them a lot in the present moment, it feels like you had. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, I think that that's, it's, it's, I think it's a, a, a proof of that idea of if it's about picking your spots and if you, the spots you pick are the right ones and are good ones, you don't actually have to show us a lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just like waiting. I just feel like I was waiting for those moments. Like, come on, give me this scene. Like also the scene when, when Sula comes back between her and Ava or Eva, I don't know. I change it every time. Eva, Ava. Two. Between the two of them, that scene, I remember being like, yo it's going down like we're gonna get this scene I can't wait um and that that what she does to her readers like the control that she has over her stories is so incredible and I remember that from the other two books as well but it just feels like you're being taken care of as a reader and that like there is a point to this this is all gonna come together in a way that a lot of authors I feel like can't do it like, yeah. I don't, it's, I think it's probably really fucking hard. I don't know, but it seems like it's really hard. I feel that way a lot of times in movies too. Like, it's like, yeah. am I, is this director taking care of me or am I just going to be annoyed at the end of this, you know? And like, yeah, there's kind of that fear where you're on the edge and you're not sure. And I feel like Toni Morrison, she, I, I can trust when I start reading her book, she has a plan and like, she's yeah. like, I'm going to be taken care of. I might not like it. I might not enjoy it. I might not even think that it was necessary like you know yeah. but I can I can understand it and I really I like that I don't I it's hard to think of other people who really have that yeah trust well, she, I, I mean I agree and I think also that scene there like there there's a lot of the book that's summarized and not a whole lot of it you actually see sort of right scene in the present moment so when you get these long scenes those are always big moments so that confrontation with Sula and and Eva before she ends up uh, sending her off. Um, <laughs> and also that scene between Sula and Nell towards the end, like that's a long scene of, un- of, and, and I, I love those like long scenes of uninterrupted dialogue mm-hmm. um, because it, it changes the pace of the book. Like the book suddenly goes really, really quickly when you're reading it um, and it comes in sort of interspersed. So you'll have these passages of sort of dense text and then you'll have moments where you're just like racing through people talking back and forth. Um, there's also that moment where they're talking, they're narrating, the women in the town are narrating, um, they're gossiping about Sula and, mm. and her being a witch. So there's that moment where they're kind of all talking over each other. I love moments like that, too. I just feel like they feel real and they're also just like pleasurable to read. <laughs> yeah, I love dialogue. I do. I know some people hate it. I'm here for the dialogue. I'm Who here for people who hate the dialogue? A lot, of the people, part. a lot of people don't <laughs> like it. I've also heard a lot of writers don't don't like to write it also i've it's heard hard. That. it's hard to write yeah, yeah. i think it's it... hard to write because people it rings false like if if you read a sentence i think that's like a description if i describe this room maybe you would be like the description is kind of boring or something but if if i had dialogue you'd be like people don't talk like that you mm. know like there's a there's i think there's like an innate like sink or like sink or swim i guess sink or swim <laughs> is a phrase i'm like not remembering the idiom like there's a sense of like either dialogue if, if you do it well people kind of don't notice it sure and if you do it poorly then it's the only thing that people can think about so right. it's hard I think it's hard but but I think her dialogue is so good because it's funny um it's often very funny um and and I like I love that scene where all of these women are kind of ta- I mean that's a thing that I was trying to do in the mothers of like these women gathering and they're kind of talking over each other and they're kind of interrupting each other and you don't really know who's talking like that sense of being like in a crowded group of women that are all like worked up about something. I think yeah. that, that I think she represents that well in this book. Right. And that humor, again, that humor always is coming back in this story. Like no matter how dark and twisty it gets, there's humor a few paragraphs later at the most, you know, like there's always something to kind of relieve that tension, which 
it again to me just feels so black like I don't I don't know another way to describe (laughs) it but like it just feels like the experience of being black is like that shift back to to the humor and that shift away from the darkness I agree I also like what you said about it relieving the tension because I think that's also really important I think that's like an undervalued kind of role of humor and fiction because there is something about like if you're just reading something that's so relentlessly bleak there's a way that as a reader that you just kind of become used to it you know like it doesn't like these moments of watching for example somebody catch on fire is not as is not as stark as as if that moment is punctuated with humor or that that book is surrounded by things that are lighter or that things that are funny or the things that are strange you know the deweys like all of these things that are just so strange and kind of funny and odd those moments, if that if the whole book was just sort of that relentless bleakness, those moments wouldn't hit the same way that they do because there is that moment. And I think that that's what I think that's what humor does when you you know anything you're watching a movie or something and you laugh. Um, you know, it's kind of what the jump scare does in a scary movie. You know, like you jump right. and then you're kind of laughing a little bit and you relax. Um, so I do think that that's something that 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 the humor does in this book um, that like it does that really well. Yeah, it it uh, it hel- it helps the book along for sure. It makes you want to keep reading. I feel like after, you know, the grandmother sets or the mother sets her son on fire and then the the daughter is it's like I don't know if I could do any more fires. Like <laughs> I definitely looked at the page number and I was like who else is burning? I was like who like cuz by the time Hannah goes up in flames, chicken Chicken Little's also dead, right? He yeah. it's Plum and then Chicken Little and then I was like, I don't know about this. But then I had a moment. Do you know the movie The Good Son? It was Macaulay Culkin. This is, is like, like, is he like evil? Yes, he's okay. an evil. Ch- it's him. And then who was that? Elijah Elijah Wood is that his name? The mm-hmm. boy who is also in like this is not my strong suit. Um, the boy who was in he was a Hobbit. Yes. at Hobbletown or whatever um <laughs> they're they're like adopted brothers and okay. one of them is Elijah Wood is like good and then Macaulay Culkin is like secretly right. evil and I kept being like oh my god this movie must be based on Sula <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't know where it was going and I was like oh we're gonna find out that Sula is like a murderer or something yeah. like on purpose um but it didn't go that way. But I definitely had a Macaulay Culkin yeah. moment of like, oh, my God, the good son. I want to say Joan Cusack is like the mom or something. I don't know. It's a super 90s movie. Um, we're about the same age. So maybe. But you might you might be you're slightly younger than me. So you might have been slightly too young for it because my <laughs> older brother was really into it. And he's okay. five years older than me. So I feel like maybe I don't know. Anyways, the good son is very scary. The ending <laughs> is great. It's very climactic. Um <laughs> has nothing to do with Sula besides an evil child, but I'm here for it. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. I do want to talk about the like, I guess, I don't know. I think if people read this book or read about this book, the thing that comes up the most, at least from my research, as well as like that this is sort of a feminist text. And I'm curious what you think about that and and what you think she was maybe trying to do with that in this book. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I I think it is a feminist text. And I think, I think a lot of this book, um, I mean, I think one, it's about the sort of limited avenues available for particularly black women, Mm -hmm. you know? So you have Nell who kind of does everything right. And Mm -hmm. she still is left, you know, she's abandoned as this single mother, her husband cheats on her. He leaves. He doesn't even send a birthday card for the kids. Right. Um, And you know, that, that sort of, you see her later as an older woman and there's that, that, oh, that, that heartbreaking passage about how she, you know, she kind of feebly tries to date, but she realizes like all of that is behind her and that her, her sons, it's like her sons are kind of turning away from her and they're like looking at the sky or some like line like that. So like even her sons who she has loved will never love her in the way that she wants to be loved. Mm. So there's like that, there's that. And that's like the woman who has done everything that she is supposed to do is sort of, you know, within this kind of, you know, heterosexual uh, family dynamic, whatever. Right. And she still, she still comes up short, you know? Um, and then you have Hannah, who is um, somebody who kind of sleeps with whoever she wants. Um, and, and with really no strings attached, like she's not trying to enter a relationship with these people, but she just does what she wants. And, you know, she ends up in flames. You have um, Eva, who, ends up physically sacrificing her body in order to help provide for her family right. after her husband has run off on her. Um, and, you know, and then, and then you have Sula who is kind of does not want to really sacrifice anything and also does not want to do the things that she is supposed to do like Nell has done. And, you know, so there, there are all of these characters I think that represent these different ways of just trying to survive as a, as a black woman in all of their avenues, they come up short in some way, or they, they run up against um, these sort of uh, factors that they can't really overcome um, because of the sort of limited um, options available to them. So I think that the book is about that, I think in some ways, and I think also what you were saying, I think what interests me even more than that is sort of the book being about these relationships between and among women and the complexity of those relationships and how those relationships change as you get older and people make different choices than you. Um, so I, I do think of it as, as a book about that, but I think, I think of a lot of it is about, about sort of, um, you know, choices. I think they're in the, for, in the edition that I had the for, there was a forward by Toni Morrison where she talks about her interest in Sula was about the idea of Sula as a character who is very in, individualistic within a society that is like supposedly individualistic, but at the same time is very conformist. Right. And I think that's kind of what it means to be like. Uh, an American, you know, there is this idea of in this country, you can be who you want to be da, 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 that has limits, you know, that right. has constraints. And well, we're seeing runs up that right now with exactly. COVID. Exactly. And Sula runs up and gets those constraints in spite of the fact that she's supposedly living in the way that one is supposed to live as an American. Right. And I, you know, I take notes and basically everything you just said, when you ran down each of those women, I have written down almost the exact same kind of like, bullet points on them. But I think that hearing you say them out loud back to me sort of, it made me think about the ways in which these characters, if they were men, how differently they would be looked at by their, by their audience in the book even, right? Like Mm -hmm. a Sula type character, a person who's selfish and 
powerful and doesn't give a fuck and cuts off their fingertip to show how brave they are and like all of these things like that's a sexy dude right Mm -hmm. like that is like what we think of you know kind of an air quotes but like that's the male character that like Mm -hmm. bragger that character is like the lead that is played by Idris Elba you know Mm -hmm. like and then and then Nell who's what every woman is supposed to be if that's Mm -hmm. a man a good Christian man like that's the person (laughs) that everyone hates right like he's such a loser he's such a pushover he has no spine it's just so interesting to think about these characters and and the ways that gender norms and gender stereotypes are so vastly different because when it's a character and there's like these characters are so deeply like she's placed them far 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 into their personalities right like there's no there's no kind of like um subtlety to sula right like there's no subtlety to nell it's very it is very black and white you know Mm -hmm. i mean there is subtlety there and and that's what makes the book interesting but as far as like looking at it and i don't know just thinking about the opposite if this was a if this was a story of men and male friendships Mm -hmm. like Sula would be the one that everyone loved and Nell would be the one that everyone was talking shit about like yeah you know they'd be like oh he's a little a little sweet you know Mm -hmm. or like he would be he would be the weird one or he pushed a boy like it would be like a whole different story yeah I I don't know I don't know why if I don't even know if that's important but it just stuck out to me hearing you talk about them and even Eva like cutting off her leg to to do write for her family and to yeah. provide for her family if it had been a man who did it he would be a hero you know yeah. and for her she's kind of looked at as like Sula a little crazy I mean she's mm-hmm. basically Sula mm-hmm. right yeah. like she's a little crazy she kind of does whatever she wants she's like I have all these people in this house I went out yeah. I got my leg cut off like that's Dewey one that's Dewey two that's Dewey three yeah. like I don't fucking know those are the Deweys like yeah I have all these people in my house I do things my own way and this is just how things go. And 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 Hannah's that way to a sense too. So it's interesting. It was interesting for me for them talking so bad about Sula trying to figure out what's the difference between her yeah. and them. And she kind of alludes to it in the book, but I didn't quite understand the distinction. It seemed like a distinction, yeah. a difference without a distinction. Well, the, I think it was like the idea that she is like a marriage between them, right? Like that she, right. she has like the arrogance of, of Eva and she has the kind of, I mean, I don't know how to describe Hannah, um, but the idea of Hannah um, being sexually liberated, we'll say. Right. Um, so she has like those two, but it's those two traits in combination with each other, which again, as you pointed out, would be many a male character, right? Right. Uh, someone who is arrogant and also sexually liberated. <laughs> that is right. uh, your, you know, your average male protagonist. Right. Um, but it's the combination, I think, of both of those things that, that makes her sort of a threat. And to me, it was like, I love that idea of, of, of when you see sort of the how Sula's like Sula's presence by giving people something to react against actually improves them <laughs> so you know these women are like the marriages are stronger because of Sula being there parents are nicer to their kids because of Sula being there right. there's a way in which she becomes like this paragon of everything that is wrong and bad and then when she is no longer there, that all goes away. <laughs> right. So like she becomes something for the for that cult that community to project onto everything that is bad and wrong and becomes something for them to react to. And when she is no longer there as kind of that force of resistance, then they kind of revert back into their their old ways. That is that part to me felt so American. Mm-hmm. Like that felt like the most metaphor, like the biggest metaphor for America besides maybe the bottom itself, like yeah. the place of like those two kind of like metaphors for for what it is to be American, right? Like especially, I mean, I I read this book, you know, this we're recording this in the middle of July, so I read this book in the middle of July, and with all that's going on with COVID and with the Black Lives Matter movement, this book spoke to so much of that for me like you were saying about the individual as part of like the conformist society and that to me is like you know the people who don't want to wear masks like that whole thing of like oh we want this to go away we want this to be better but we actually don't want to do anything on our own or be inconvenienced on our own to to help the greater whole even though we know that it works in other places but right sure waste my time but sula or but the bottom is that same kind of thing like when you get to the end and you find out that now everybody wants to live in the hills yeah i was like of course they do like just yeah. like the gentrification of the hood which is really 
the hills. Right. And I also love how every time she said the bottom, she always said like up in the bottom or into the bottom. I just thought that was yeah. really great. That's a exactly. little humor. A yeah, yeah. Another joke. joke. Yeah. I just exactly. love that. Um, but, but Sula kind of like rallying that common enemy. It made me think of, this is, I know, totally off, but it made me think a little bit of 9-11 in that like right after 9-11, America was like, rallied together and like we're American and we love America and we're standing behind everybody and we stand behind the troops and this and that. But like the, that part of it was also in relationship to our, our unabashed anti-Muslim rhetoric, right? Like it was like Sula becomes Sula is the metaphor for, for she's the common enemy. Yeah. She's the common enemy. And and that's like so American. I feel like we're all, I mean, maybe it's human. I'm not, I am American. So I can only speak to my experience, obviously in America, but it just felt like so phony and so uncritical of what the situation was, right? Like there's no reflection and it's all about, it's all outward against her. And it, and you know, we're seeing that right now in this black lives matter moment of like, all of a sudden everybody is so pro-black and like everybody is against racism, but it's like, well, you're not taking a moment to look at all the harmful shit you've done to black people. And like, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe. I know that there's a school of thought um, where black people can be racist. I don't know if I subscribe to that or not, but there also is room for self-reflection from black people about our own anti-blackness. Right. And like that in this moment that isn't being done because it's being drowned out by white people's, like we talked about last week, learning about race, you know? And it's just like, it just, Sula just feels like such a metaphor for all the things that are fucked up about the ways in which communities blame other, other people, other things, it's everyone else's fault, you know? Yeah. And as soon as that thing is gone or fixed, then it all crumbles, right? Like yeah. you see, we're seeing with COVID, like as soon as people actually need healthcare, that's not provided by their employers, this ship just falls apart. Yeah. I, I, I don't, and I don't know that I would have understood that metaphor or if it was something that was intentional by Toni Morrison when she wrote the book, obviously she couldn't have predicted this, but it's not like racism wasn't around then too, or, right. or systems weren't fucked up then too. But, um, it's definitely reading this in this moment felt like, holy shit. Like, why didn't we see this coming? And I know people yeah. did, but ugh, I don't know. That was a lot yeah. of thoughts and not a lot of questions <laughs> or answers. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that, you know, I think, it can be helpful, I think, as a writer to think about stories kind of swinging between values. And like in this book, like you can think of it as swinging between individualism and conformity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like where do where are characters oriented along those values and when are they kind of swinging from one side to another? Um, you know, so I think that the, you know, even from the beginning, like when you're introduced to these women as girls and you're introduced to their households and their houses are very different, you know. Nell's mother, you get you get the sense of her family and where she's come from and the sort of orderliness. And then you get Sula's family and she grows up and it's basically a house of women almost. Um, and also just people who are unrelated to each other because they live in this boarding house. You get that sense. Um, so I feel like you're kind of watching those characters swing between poles and, and obviously they end up on very different sides of things um, eventually. But I think that that's, that's true of, of thinking about the history of America, um, these sort of moments of, of individualism and the way that we lionize that. Um, but at the same time, while kind of insisting on a degree of conformity um, and, and particularly the frustration of those who have conformed that frustration towards the individual, because there's a sense of like, how dare you? you right. Know? And I think that's, I think it's true also of beloved, this, the community judging the individual and thinking, how dare you? Um, but again, like I said, both of those books have moments towards the end when the community comes together in some way. Um, and I think that that's something that I feel like Toni Morrison was really concerned with is sort of the, the individual and also this, this in, in lots of novels, I think are interesting. Like, I think most novels are interested in, maybe not most, but I think a lot of us are interested in communities and where the individual fits in the community. Um, but I, but I think that that's, that's a through line definitely between both of those books of sort of fractured community judging the individual um, in the case of, of Beloved, you have the community returning to kind of embrace the individual at the end. In the case of, or in the case of uh, Sula, not so much. <laughs> right. 
All right, y'all, just reminding you about our good friends over at Libro FM. Libro FM is an audiobook platform that allows you to buy your books directly from your favorite independent bookstore. Joining Libro FM is about more than just books. It's about being an active member in your community, even when you're shopping online. Libro FM makes it super easy for you to get started with an offer for brand new listeners of two audiobooks for the price of one when you use the code THESTACKS at checkout. So next time you're thinking of buying an audiobook, head to Libro.fm, use the code THESTACKS at checkout, and rest easy knowing your favorite bookseller will thank you. Let's talk about the the final su- National Suicide Day parade. Yeah. Um, that's a hell of a scene. Yeah, Whew. it is. Holy shit. That scene was so good. Oh, my God. Um, so basically what happens is Shadrach, who's kind of a PTSD slash isolated recluse um world war one veteran who's come back to the bottom who used to be a total babe awesome dude saw some things he's not the same never been the same but every year on january 3rd he does a parade called national suicide day kind of like to just call out his demons essentially i guess what year it's like it's like many years later it's like in the 40s right that mm-hmm. i can't remember exactly what year but it's in the 40s um and they they go to do their parade and it just like sp- spirals out like people decide to join in in a way that they never i guess had before and what ends up happening is they go to this tunnel which was kind of promised to be um a job site for for black people from the bottom to be able to, you know, build a life for themselves. They're going to be employed to carry the stone or dig the hole or get the goods or whatever. And that never came to fruition. Those jobs are given all to all the white people. So when they get to the tunnel, they start to destroy everything there and, and they go into the tunnel and then they get like sucked in. Essentially they fall, fall into the hole or into the water they fall off the cliff. I don't, I'm not exactly I mean, sure. Col- I collapses. It collapses. Yeah. yeah it co- like it like eats them. them. Yeah. Yeah. It devours um, them in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And so everybody, not everybody, almost everybody dies in it. Um, including the Deweys we think because they're never found again. Very yeah. sad. Love them. Um, tar baby, uh, like uh, basically every character except for Shadrach is not, mm-hmm. I mean, and Nell's not there, but all the kind of like peripheral characters mm-hmm. get eaten up there. Um, and, and Shadrach is kind of just like looking out and, and watching this happen. And again, what stuck out to me uh, about that scene in this moment is it was so reminiscent of those first few days of protests right after the George Floyd murder, right? Like you're seeing, because, because the people in the book kind of get whipped up into this frenzy, like it starts as this regular parade for national suicide day and it turns into kind of like an uprising or a riot or whatever you, you will call it um, about this anger and, and this hurt for, you know, lies that they were told or things that, you know, things that are so understandable and feel like could have been 2020, you know? And as I was reading the scene, I was like, Oh my God, I get this. And I took a note of being like black lives matter. Like I, you know, I take little notes. And then as I finished the scene, I was like, Oh, fuck man what's tony trying to tell us right now <laughs> like it like hurt it hurt me like i was i was excited for them to have this moment of rage right and like yeah. of this moment of destruction and like taking back something of what they thought they were owed and then to see that it kind of it didn't work out that way like it was yeah. still a disappointment it was hard. it made me sad yeah i mean i felt the same i thought there was there was interesting stuff about labor in the book because I think it's uh, Nell's husband who wanted to work building that road. I think that was Ajax. Ajax. Yeah. Um, There was that line about wanting to be able to be like, my sweat is on that road that you're walking on. This idea of, um, which again, like I keep connecting it all back to art, but it's true. Like the idea of creating something that is lasting that you can point people to and say, I made this. Right. Um, The idea that that's not, that's not what happens if you are somebody who is, cleaning a house. If you're somebody who is, um, you know, in the job that he eventually has where he's working at the restaurant, he can, he thinks of that as degraded and, and the implication is feminized work. (laughs) 
Right. Um, so there's like this way in which that's degraded in his mind because it's more feminine. He's wearing these black patent leather shoes. He's not holding a shovel. That's real men's labor, you know? So there's that gendered kind of reading of it. Um, but I think there's also this sense of like, that's not something that it, you can point to in the way that you can point to a road. Um, so, so that being something that, that people want, it's not just about the job itself. It's about wanting to, to make something that is lasting in the place where you live. Um, and it feels like such a meager desire that people want, but at the same time, it's something that becomes so impossible because as you said, they're lied to, they promise that these jobs are coming and then those jobs are given to white immigrants, like the lowest jobs are given to the immigrants. Um, so, so there's that, that sense of that as a betrayal um, and I think also just the idea of these being tunnels and roads, which are things about trade and commerce, but also about traveling and also about communicating and also these kind of avenues of going from one place to another, that being the thing that is ultimately denied them and also ultimately destroyed. <laughs> um, so I think there's always this kind of topsy turviness of the book from when you were first introduced to the bottom being a place that is up high. Um, you're kind of introducing that topsy turviness, but, um, but that being... Um, something, someplace where you land at the end of this sort of destruction. And then when you get to kind of the coda of the book, it's like, well, now these are golf courses, you know? Right. So you truly um, end up in, in a very, um, in a very different place from, and which is where you cycle back to the beginning. That's where you open. Um, but there's something about that, that kind of, I don't know, it's almost like a wave to me, like the structure of the book. It's not quite cyclical, but there's like a waviness to it. Um, that's not a, it's not a circle. But but there is that kind of up and downness, which maybe is kind of the bottom being in the hills and then the valley and all that stuff. I don't know. There's right. that sense of that when I think about this book. Yeah, it's like I'm doing my fingers, but it's kind of like that like loop de loop roller coaster yes. where it like goes, it goes and it kind of circles back, but then it keeps yes. moving forward. Yeah. Um, you land at a different place than when you began. So I don't think that you can really make a circle of it, but I think like, yeah, there's that up and downness and that feeling, which honestly feels that feels kind of accurate representation of like the shape of being just a person. Yeah. Just being things. alive. Yeah. yeah just like, being alive. <laughs> that there's these, these, these wa- it's like waves. Yeah. Like it, it's the same movement, but it moves in a direction. Like it yeah, doesn't, you can never go back. Yeah, no, I agree. And what you're saying about like the labor and like wanting to create something and to have your sweat be a part of something. It's like the reason people put their hands in asphalt when it's dry, exactly. you know, like it's like, oh, I was here. Exactly. And I think with Ajax, he also talks about like wanting or Jude. I can't remember. I think it's Ajax, but maybe it's Jude. I don't know. They're also like the same person, which is kind of great. Where I love, I love when the men characters are like how women characters so often are portrayed where it's like, who can tell the difference? But they talk, they talk about wanting to have a real income to be able to like make a life. Right. Yeah. Like, I think that that is one of the things about work, like the dignity of work that we so often hear people talk about. It's like, sure. Free things are great. Who doesn't love a free thing, but to have your life, to not have earned anything in your life or to feel like you've earned, you've done something and been able to build a life off of the things that you've done. I think that that really speaks to, to the, to the dream of the tunnel or the promise of the tunnel. I think also the other, like, I don't know. I think the way that Toni Morrison writes men is really interesting, (laughs) but I think the line that I love is I think Ajax where he's like, aside from his mother, he had never met an interesting woman in his life. And I'm just like, yes, I feel like that. There are so many men I know. So many men. Like, <laughs> like that, that right there, like distilled so many men that I had encountered in my life. Just perfectly. Um, that idea. And it's like, yeah, he likes thinking about airplanes and he, his mom. And that's yeah. kind of, you know, those are his interests. And, <laughs> and the idea that that is like the person who is most kind of intellectually fitted to suit Sula is also kind of sad and like right. depressing to think about like that is her, her kind of intellectual equal that she's able to encounter in the book. Um, but at the same time, like we said, we're talking about there being limited avenues here. And, and even in that way, Ajax obviously is someone who comes up very short. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So right. Um, wait, I, so you posted something on Instagram this morning about the book. Can you talk about it? Or are you actually going to write that essay? Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to. No, I was I was telling a friend, um, my friend Derek Austin, who's a really great poet. Um, I was just talking about rereading Sula and thinking about, um, I think, how often Toni Morrison is, is writing about the, the clownery of, homo- of heterosexuality. 
Um, and, and just like, I think this book like perfectly encapsulates that. I mean, part of it was just speaking about this, this man that she sees who's, who's never met an interesting woman. There's always tension in, in the heart of these like straight relationships that she is writing about. There's always these like power dynamics. And that's not to say that these, none of these dynamics exist in other types of, uh, other types of relationships at all, but there's something about like the men and women that are in relationships in her books. There's always like a little bit of just spite. <laughs> There's always yeah. a little bit of like hatred almost. There's always a little bit of, of some type of sort of power and like some type of like there, I mean, especially in this book, like every relationship is doomed. Right. Um, there is just a foolishness and a futility of it that I, that feels, you know, um, that feels like apt in a way for me. And maybe this is me just being really cynical um, but, but I, I was re- reading it and like all of those sections where Sula is thinking about sex and, and the fact that to her, there's no like emotional weight to it. There's not even anything really sacred to it. Mm. <laughs> like her kind of her her feeling about sex in that way. Um, and also just like particularly that dynamic with, with her and Ajax and just that, like, what does it mean to be in these relationships that are supposed to be so close and intimate, but there's always some spite at the center of it. And there's always this power dynamic and this power imbalance that everybody is aware of, but also is like continuing to engage in it. <laughs> and that just to me spoke to the clownery of it all. So uh, I was mostly just joking with my friend, but I think that Sula is, um, you know, I think that in, in Beloved, there's that relationship with, with Paul D and Setha, which is clownish at times, but I think ends up being really good. Yeah. Um, there's that line that clown, that um, Paul D tells Seth at the end where he's like, you're a friend of my mind. And <laughs> that's a line I just think about all the time. Um, so there, there is a way that we, I think we landed a good place in that, in that straight relationship. Um, but I think certainly in Sula, it's just every relationship is just clownery and there's there's a utility of it. That is, I think maybe, maybe cynical, but also does not feel inaccurate, I guess to me. (laughs) Well, and also between Sula and Nell, their love for one another, you know, by the time we get to the very, very end, like that was really the romantic relationship, right? Like it what maybe wasn't sexual, but it was, that was the true love. love. Yeah. That was the true love, the meaning of two souls, the meaning of two equal parts. Um, and that, I mean, that ending where it kind of is like, it was always Sula, you know, like (laughs) in the rom-com version of this book, like, it's like, it was always Sula and Nell runs through the airport to like find her and tell her. I love, I mean, I love a book like that though. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I mean, we were just talking about Gone with the Wind, but that's Gone with the Wind, right? Right, 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 right. I thought I really wanted this guy, but actually the love of my life was my friend. Right. I think there's, there's a way in which I, I love a story like that. And I think often like whenever I see, I mean, there's a way in which stories about women that are fighting over a man feel very trite and like we've been there, done that. But I'm always, most of the time, I'm like, the desire is not really for that guy. The desire is between these women. The loss of that friendship, the loss of that intimacy. Exactly. Like maybe that desire is sexual. Maybe it's not. But that is really the desire. Like that man becomes like a conduit for it in some way. And I feel like in this book, that felt true of like, yeah, really, it's the intimacy of, of this friendship. And that intimacy really, like the moment that intimacy is kind of broken is when Nell gets married, right? That's when Sula disappears right. and we don't see her for 10 years. It's because Nell has entered this relationship with this man that is supposed to be the most, the sort of most intimate relationship of her life. Right. And that's the moment in which the friendship is broken in some way. And then it kind of is resuscitated when, when Sula returns. But I just like, I love the idea of, of that, which feels like, you know, the idea of, of friendships being uh, really important relationships for me in my life um, and really intimate relationships for me in my life. And I feel like the idea of that in this book is something that feels, uh, feels like a really major kind of idea in the book. Right. And then Jude becomes the Sula of that relationship in the sense that Jude is the person that, that Nell thinks is like, is the common enemy. Right. And then it's not till later that she realizes that it was, you know, I don't know. Does that make sense? Jude is the Sula of that relationship. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> like the way that the townspeople blame Sula for all that's okay. wrong. And then they like go, they try to fix everything because of Sula. Right. And so in Nell's mind, it was always Jude, but really Jude was like the red herring or whatever. I don't know what you call yeah. it, but like, yeah. anyways, 
okay, we're running out of time and I'm obviously running out of steam, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I do want to, I, I feel like we can't not talk about that chicken little moment where he's drowned and then that way, way, way at the end when Eva's like, so you guys killed that boy, huh? And like that, that moment gave me like, I was like, yes, we're getting it. I've I've been waiting to talk about this. And, and the, I don't know. It just was so good. I don't even know. I don't know what to say about it. I just felt like it was so good. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think also that the thing that I was thinking about this book, um, the second time, I mean, again, thinking about the idea of Sula as an artist is like, like, what is, if we think about her as an artist, there's a way in which her watching and later in that moment we see that scene you're talking about is, is when Eva talks about Nell, the difference between Nell seeing this happen and watching it watching and that being it. different. And the idea of the artist is somebody who's watching and not necessarily someone who is just seeing. Um, And I think about that, that moment where chicken little drowns um, and the moment where, where um, Sula's mother is on fire and And Sula's interested. Yes. See Sula watching interested, which is what an artist does, right? right? Like that is horrifying to think about, but that is what the artist is doing is like looking into moments that are horrifying with interest. So there's something about, um, this is in my, in my, um, sort of more pro Sula moments, um, where these moments that are really horrifying to people because they, they seem to show her being, you know, evil or her lacking empathy or something like that, or maybe, or maybe not that at all. There's just, there is, there's something about being able to look into the horrifying thing that, that is what an artist does. Right. Um, so, so that was like one of my feelings about it. Um, but just like on a craft level, I mean, I, you know, the idea of these, of these two girls bonding through this thing that they think is a shared secret, which is actually not a secret between the two of them. Um, but bonding over that and, and Mel being able to, I love that, that Tony Morrison, uh, I love that that is kind of where we kind of twist at the end. Um, it's not like a plot twist or like a reveal, but the idea that Mel is, like I had, when, when I was first reading, I never thought about like, what was Nell thinking and feeling in that moment? You know, right, it's all right. so much on Sula's like culpability or her inability to, you know, react or whatever. It's also Sula focused. So to turn to that end and then not only force us to think about it, also force Nell to think about it. I thought that was a, a really great place to, to land. Yeah. And, and Toni Morrison writes that scene in a way that's so enjoyable. So it's easy to understand why it was sort of enjoyable for Nell. Like she makes it work for us because of all the kind of deaths in the book. It's the least gruesome. It's even though it's the most gruesome, right? Like it's like this child accidentally drowning in a river at the hands of these other children who are playing, but it is kind of like the most enjoyable death in, in the book. I think so. Yeah. It's a like you said, it's a moment of play, you know, there's a, there's a moment of, they're climbing that tree and he's like the little voice so excited to tell his brother how high up he went. And there is something that's so, that's so sweet and pure about that moment. So the fact right. that you land where you land. Well, and you high. think he's going to fall off the tree and die, right? Yeah. Like there's like that moment of like, I don't want to come down. And you're like, Oh God, something bad's yeah. going to happen. And then it doesn't. And then they're playing. And then all of a sudden, that's what happens. Yeah. all of the deaths actually are so all of a sudden, yeah. you know, it's like, you don't expect them at all. And then all of a sudden, like every single one, I had to be like, wait, 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 except for Sula's. Yeah. You kind of expect Sula's because she's yeah. like dying. She's but the way the way that they say like she was looked like she was in the middle of a yawn. Yeah. Oh, my God. The imagery in this book, the way like yeah. it's so cinematic. It was it ever a movie? Do you know? I don't think it was. Um, but I think it, you know, I think it could be. In, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you had feelings, if, if you've seen or have feelings about the beloved movie. I never uh, saw it. Yeah, I I don't love it, but I think it's also a difficult movie to film because, like, there's so like particularly that part of Beloved where you're just like hearing Beloved's direct thoughts. Like, right. what do you do with that in a movie? You know, that's like one of the most striking parts of the book to me. So there are things like that that I but but I think for this, like, yeah, there are a lot of clear plot points that you could that you could track for a film. Um, but it's still in cap. Like, I love I love reading representations of characters dying I find that Mm. so fascinating because obviously none of us know what that's like you know so everybody is just making it up as they go 
and and her being like wait till i tell now and, and that being like kind of oh so good it's so good okay we always talk about the cover and the title, but I feel like because there's so many printings of this book and so many covers, do you have the green like vintage yeah, one? Vintage Me too. One. It's so boring. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's fine. Like it's great. It's a set, but there's not a lot yeah. to talk about there. Yeah. So we won't really talk about it. Um, I mean, shit. I, I, it's, that's like the most anticlimactic ending of a podcast <laughs> ever. Like, eh, wow. Um, well, I guess, what do you think of the title of the book being Sula? I, I can't imagine it being anything else, but yeah. Well, I can't, but I also think another thing that was striking in my reread was how long it takes to get to Sula. Yes. Because she's like, she's the titular character, but you don't actually see Sula like chapters into this book. Right. That's um, so true. So there is a way in which her arrival is delayed. And I, that also causes you to anticipate it. You're like, who the hell is Sula? You well, know? that's so, also true for the bluest eye. Yeah. And beloved, right? Like beloved. I mean, the blue eye isn't obviously a t- a, the title character, but yeah. the person to to whom that mm-hmm. is kind of attributed by the end is like the last person we meet. Yeah, kind of in the book. Um, yeah. So there's something, I guess, there. But also, yeah. like, if this book is Nell, <laughs> well, there's a movie about a Nell, right? Is there a movie called Nell? I think there is. Um, but it's just like. Toni Morrison is so good at naming people and Sula yeah. is just such a delicious name. Definitely. No, nobody wants to read Nell, you know? Yeah. And like, I think that there's also a way in which like introducing the most exciting character, like kind of her being, her being refracted through these other characters that we have met. And like, by the time we meet Sula, we've met a lot of interesting people, you yeah. know? It's not like, like we've met, you know, Shadrach, we've met, I think Eva, we've met, Hannah, I think at that point, like we've met, we met these- Helene. Um, yeah, Helene. We've met a lot of really fascinating people at that point. Uh, but I love that idea of delaying it and delaying her arrival um, and, and us seeing the book before she arrives and seeing the community after she arrives. There's something very, I think, precise about that. And just for, so much of the book is not from her point of view. So when, once we are deeply in Sula's point of view, that also is something that's really enjoyable because we haven't spent a lot of time in her point. Yeah. Yeah. God, Toni Morrison is so good. I get it now. I didn't get it. I get it now. I'm ashamed. Have you read Song of Solomon? I haven't yet. I think that's probably the the next next one one. we'll do. Yeah, I think so. That's your favorite? Mm -hmm. A lot of people love that one. That's got the anti-hero, right? Yes, there's an anti-hero. Yep. I love an Um, Mm -hmm. anti-hero. Brett, this was so wonderful. Thank you so, so much for talking with me about Sula. Um, We didn't even plug your books really that much in this one, but (laughs) just in case you guys have no idea who I'm talking to, you should go back and listen to Brit's first episode from the first week of August, but her books are The Mothers and The Vanishing Half. You can get both now. Um, Not to just like be totally slurping uh, Brit, but her book, The Vanishing Half, was a number one, instant number one New York Times (laughs) bestselling book, which talk your shit. That's amazing. Congratulations. (laughs) We didn't even like really do that before, but I feel like it's, it needs to be said. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for being here and everybody. We will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Brit for being our guest and a special thank you to Claire McGinnis for setting up this interview. Our book club pick for September is The Undocumented Americans by Carla Cornejo Villavicencio. We will be discussing the book on September 30th, and you'll need to tune in next Wednesday to find out who our guest is for that conversation. You can find everything we discussed today in the link in the show notes. And for more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. Will Sterling is our producer and sound editor and The Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 